Amen. The Lord is the king of glory. He is the king of all. He is the ruler of all. He alone is worthy to be crowned with glory. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you this morning as we acknowledge through the reading of your word that the earth is yours. It belongs to you. You created it. Lord, your word says in the very beginning of scripture that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And Lord, this psalm that we just read reminds us that the earth is yours. It belongs to you. It is not ours. It is yours. All the fullness of everything in it, the world and those who dwell therein. Lord, all of creation is yours. All of it, Lord. Everything belongs to you. All creation, everything we see, the rocks, the mountains, the the trees, the streams, the rivers, the, the oceans, the birds, all the animals. Everything, Lord, that has been created. Even things that were made that came from what you created, Lord, is yours. This very church building that we're in is yours. Because the wood came from something that you created. The, the, the chairs, the fabric, the, the steel that, that, that hold up the chairs, the carpet, the fibers in it. Lord, the clothes that we wear, everything that we have came from something that you created. So, Lord, when we talk about the fullness there, the fullness of the earth, we're talking about every single part of creation, Lord, is yours. And because it's yours, Lord, you deserve all the glory. Because it is yours, Lord, we exist. Because it is yours, Lord, only you deserve all of the praise all of the glory, all of the thanksgiving. Lord, the earth is yours. You alone are honored. Lord, the psalmist says that praise waits for you. And Lord, all praise is due to you from all your creatures. For Lord, all of your works that we just talked about and even more display your attributes and fulfill your designs. The sea, the dry land, winter, cold, summer, heat, morning, light, evening, darkness. All of them, Lord, are full of you. And Lord, you gave us all these things richly to enjoy. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. At your pleasures, Lord, in empires, nations, kingdoms on this earth rise and fall. All your works, Lord, praise you and your saints bless you. And Lord, let me, let us be numbered with the holy ones, with the holy saints of God, those who have been called out of this world. <coughs> Lord, may my religion, may my life of faith, may all of our life of faith as a church be always firmly rooted in your word. May our understandings, Lord, be divinely informed. May our affections be holy and heavenly. May our motives be simple and pure. And Lord, may our hearts never be wrong with you. Lord, I ask you this morning to deliver us from the natural darkness of our own mind. From the depravity that, that lies in our hearts, the corruptions of our hearts. From the temptations to which we may be exposed. 
from the daily snares of the devil that attend to us. Lord, in this world, we are in constant danger from our enemy. But Lord, let your watchful eye ever be upon us as you defend us. Lord, save us from the power of our worldly and spiritual enemies and from all the painful evils to which we've exposed ourselves. Lord, you are the Lord God Almighty. You are the King of glory. You are strong and mighty. You are mighty in battle. And Lord, your word tells us, it proclaims for us to lift up our hands, O gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Lord, we are to usher in you into our life as King, to bow down to you, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, you alone are God. You alone are worthy of worship. Let us look to you, Lord, and be saved. It is you and you alone, Lord, who brings salvation to the lost. And Lord, I pray throughout all of our sister churches that you are acknowledged as the king of glory. That you bless all of our churches all the true gospel churches, Lord, around where Christ is king, where your word is honored and preached faithfully. We thank you for all these faithful men, Lord, that labor in the gospel. My brother Sylvester over in Zimbabwe, brother Steve and brother Anthony and Carlton and, and Phil and Bob, Brother Curly and Justin and Cody and Brother Josh, Lord, all these brothers, Lord, all these men, these faithful men preaching faithfully your word, Lord, preaching faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you may strengthen them, strengthen all of us, including myself, Lord, strengthen all of us as men to continue to be faithful, to continue to hold Christ up in his rightful place, that the pride of man be humbled but that the glory of Christ may be exalted and Lord bless all of our members of all of our churches Lord that we may be blessed and encouraged by the faithful ministry of the preachers that labor in preaching the gospel and Lord I pray this morning as I continue to preach through this text in the book of Ephesians on marriage Lord that you fill me with your spirit to teach this text well Lord, that we may consider your truth, consider what we hear this morning. Lord, that you may send the Spirit to illuminate your truths this morning. And Lord, plant your word into our hearts that we may not sin against you. Father, thank you for your word. May it encourage, may it convict, may it bring fruit into our lives, and may it bring sinners to repentance. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Man, let us turn to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. We're continuing in our text, our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. Last week we talked about marriage, what is marriage, who created marriage, why marriage is 
important, you know, who ordained marriage. And we went back to the beginning of Scripture in the book of Genesis, the second chapter, and looked at uh, the fact that God is the one who uh, instituted marriage, that marriage is pre-political, it is pre-civilizational, meaning that marriage existed before politics, it existed before government, it existed before civilizations were created. So that's what we mean by pre-political and pre-civilizational. So in other words, to say that man did not make up marriage, God did. Marriage is God's idea from the beginning of creation. And marriage is God's ideal for creation. Marriage is God's ideal. And then we also looked at last week the first command that Paul gives here where he tells wives to uh, submit to their own husbands. I wrote down some things from time to time I'll have thoughts that I, I, I write down on little notepad uh, that I have. I'll have thoughts that I write down and um, one thing I, I wrote down from March I'm sorry, May 26, 2022. And um, I wrote, we cannot expect or allow the government to meet the responsibilities that we as the creatures of God have been given ourselves. We can't expect the government to do what God has given us to do. I also continue, uh, why can't we trust the government and its leaders? And one word is because of worldview. We talked about worldview last week. The secular worldview is the default of our government. And sec secularism seeks to destroy everything that God has created and God has ordained. And that's why I talked about last week. You have all these so-called different ways that people can be, quote, married. That comes from a secular worldview. And the secular worldview is hostile against the biblical worldview. Secularism is a worldview that is hostile to uh, Christianity. <clears throat> and what the secularists try to do, or what they are attempted to do, is, is since they deny God, then they have to create their own realities. And that's what we see taking place in our culture and in our nation. But we must remember this. Once you deny the existence of God, all bets are off. You're off to the races. You can believe anything you want. You can deny the existence of everything God created. When you deny the existence of God, you have no objective standard by which to do anything. So when you deny the existence of God, you can say that two men or two women can make a marriage or that one man and three women or five two women and three men can make a marriage if you deny the existence of God because that is antithetical to what God has created and what God has made so when you see people that have that worldview that any type of uh, union between 
how many people could make up a marriage you're looking at and you're listening to a person who has denied the existence of God. All bets are off when you deny God's existence. And that is what we see taking place in our culture and in Western civilization. And that's why you see marriage the way uh, that it is. But marriage is something that is glorious. It is an institution that God himself created. And we need to instill in the next generation who they are as creatures of God. We've talked about this all the time. Our younger people and adults need to be reminded that you are image bearers of God. You are made in God's image. You were created to worship God and to enjoy him forever. Even if you're not a Christian, you worship something. There's no such thing as worshiping nothing. All of us are worshipers. Every single person you see, no matter what age they are, they are worshipers. If you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping man. You're worshiping yourself. You worship created things. Paul talks about that in Romans 1. People worship creation rather than the creator God. So if you don't worship your creator who made you in his image, you're going to worship something else. And that something else that you worship is going to just bring misery upon misery upon misery. Because you were not designed to worship created things. You were designed to worship the creator God. So the next generation and even now need to know that they are image bearers of God. And that there's beauty in how they were created. That is nothing inherently sinful about being a male or a female. That God made you, he knitted you in his womb. David said that in Psalm 139. That you are a marvelous work of God. That's what we emphasize here at our uh, church and other churches like ours. That every single person who defines beauty, God does. Beauty is not in the eyes of the beholder. That's a lie. Beauty is in the eyes of God. Because it is God who creates beauty. If you're made in the image of God, guess what? You're beautiful because you are made in the image of your creator. The covenant of marriage is beautiful. The writer in Hebrew says marriage is honorable. It's a wonderful covenant. And we talked last week about why it's not just a piece of paper. You want to know more about that, you can go back and listen to it. We're not going to rehash that. But marriage is more than a piece of paper. It is a, it is a beautiful covenant it is a one flesh union we talked about that what did Adam say to Eve you are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones that is the one flesh union that is the glorious union of a man and a woman coming together in covenant with God with their creator that is the beauty of marriage it is all beautifully designed by God to bring him glory but the secularists the secular world seeks to destroy that because they hate God and because they hate God they're going to seek to destroy what God has ordained as beautiful that is all Satan can do Satan can't create anything he can only pervert what God has made good 
He can only deceive people from believing the truth. They hate the light of the truth. They hate the light of the gospel. So they seek to destroy everything that God has made. And that's why we as Christians have to think biblically. We can't think like the world. As the old folks say, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. We can't think like the world. We can't think like the secularists think about the things of God. And marriage is one of them. Which leads me to our passage this morning as we continue in this book. We read in verses 22 through 23 again, as I said earlier, we read verses 22 through 24 rather last week. But we're going to get it again just for context and then deal with the second part of Paul's admonition. So Ephesians 5 beginning at verse 22 again. The Apostle Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now the church, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to the husband. I'm not going to rehash that. That was last week's sermon. You want a uh, refresher of it? It's posted on our website to listen to. I would encourage you to do that. Now this part we're going to treat this morning. Verse 25. What does that first word say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Excuse me. Or any such thing. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There we go again with that one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, as I mentioned last week, Paul spends the balance of this discourse on who? The husband's. He dealt with the wives in the first few verses as we saw and now he deals with the husbands. Remember, our big idea is that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. You have the bride and the bridegroom. The church is the bride and Christ is the bridegroom or as we say in our day, the groom. In ancient language, he was called the bridegroom. That's why we see that language in scripture. So Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Okay? Now, wives submit to their husbands for a reason. And the reason why they 
submit to their husbands is because the husbands love their wives. So the wives submit in loving submission to their husbands. And we talked about what submission is. Submission is not about power. It's, it's not about the husband, um, you know, pound his fist saying, I'm the man. You obey me, woman. Not like Ike and Tina Turner. That's not the way that we are supposed to do it. But there is a loving submission that takes place. So Paul says here, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So, husbands, love. He says, wives, submit. But he says, husbands, love. You okay, Brother Harvey? Okay. Amen. So Paul says, wives submit. Then he says, husbands love. Husbands love. So what is love? What is love again? We talked about love last week. Love involves a few things. Number one, love involves sacrifice. It involves sacrifice. Love involves sacrifice. And where do we see the greatest love shown to mankind that is the love of Christ and how Christ gave his life purchased our salvation by dying on the cross for our sins that is the ultimate act of love that has been demonstrated to mankind and so in that love we see ultimate sacrifice we see ultimate selflessness not selfishness we see selflessness that is what love involves so when Paul is telling husbands to love he does not command husband to submit to his wife but instead he tells husbands that he must give himself up for her that is that is what love is that the husband lays it all on the line for his wife. That is, that is how it looks. He lays everything on the line for his wife. Now what woman wouldn't want to lovingly submit to a husband that does that? Because he loves her. He sacrifices for her. And the wife notices that sacrifice. And she willingly follows her husband's lead. So this is what we see here. The greater burden again is on the husband. Why? Because the husband represents something. He says, husband love your wife as who? Christ 
love the church. In the marital covenant, the husband is a representative of Christ. That is why marriage is a picture of the gospel. The husband is a representative of Christ in the marital covenant. That's a great responsibility. And it's not one that should be taken lightly. That's why marriage is not just a piece of paper. It's not just a sheet of paper that you go to the courthouse to get and pay $25 for. Marriage is not that cheap. That's an insult to say marriage is just a piece of paper. That's, that's an insult to marriage. That's an insult to the institution of marriage. Because it's a sacred, holy covenant that involves more than just you and your husband or you and your wife. It involves Christ. It involves the relationship between Christ and his church which he purchased with his blood. So y'all see the significance of this? It's, it's, it's not just some sheet of paper. It's not something that's meaningless. It's something holy and something glorious in the eyes of God. It is so glorious that we as, as fallen man, we can't quite wrap our hands around it. So Paul says, husband, love your wives. And he gives the example of how husbands ought to do it. They ought to do it as Christ did what? Loved the church. So for us as men, we have that responsibility to love our wives as Christ unconditionally loves his church and Paul used the Greek word for love which is agape you have two different types of love you have uh, eros and you have agape love well actually four different translations for love in, in Greek and we need to understand these differences between the few you have eros which is one word for love Eros means you can find the word erotic, erotic love. It refers to love just driven by desire. Like when you say, oh, I'm so in love with this person, that's an Eros type of love. That's a love driven by your own desires. That's why it fizzles out. I'm going to tell you now, being in love with somebody is not going to sustain a marriage because that, that's that, that's that uh, desirable love. That, that it, it comes from your desires, your most of the time sinful desires. That's why some people, they have what, what they call whirlwind romances. Then next thing you know, they get married and two years later, they get divorced. Why? Because those desires are worn off. That high that they had from, from being around the person or seeing the person. And, oh, I get butterflies when I see you. I mean, which is fine. I got butterflies when I first met my wife. And I still get butterflies. But it's, it's because I don't have that superficial Eros type of love for her. It's deeper than that, and that's what marital love is. So when he's saying husband's love, he's not talking about some fleshly uh, love driven by desire. Agape is love that is felt, not talking about emotionally felt, 
but it is love that drives a person to sacrifice for the object of their love. One of the biblical things about love is that love means that you pursue the best in the object of your love. You're pursuing their greater good, not yours. That's why self-love is so sinful because you're only thinking about who? Yourself. That's sinful. That's idolatry. But true love involves pursuing the greater good of the object of your love. And look at that in context of Christ. Christ, his love, he pursued our greater good, which was our need to be saved from our sins, our need to have our sins forgiven. And we could not in ourselves forgive our own sins. We could not in ourselves save ourselves. We needed help from another. And that was Christ. What did John 3.16 says? God's love of the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sacrificed his only son. That those who believe in him will not perish eternally forever, but will have what? Everlasting life. That's the ultimate act of love. So when you're loving somebody, you're pursuing their greater good. You're not doing things to them that will harm them. You do things to them that will promote their flourishing. So agape love is a different kind of love. It's a love of decision. It's more about decision than from a spontaneous heart. It is a matter of the mind as it is a matter of the heart. Because it chooses to love the undeserving. That's agape love. It has to do with the mind. Not emotions. It has nothing to do with feelings. It has to do with decisions. So it's a love that loves without changing. Your affections for that person are not alienated. This love that he's talking about as far as husbands is a self-giving love. It, it's a love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment this love that husbands are called to it can be given to the unlovable or the unappealing that means as your wife gets older and gravity takes over you don't want to divorce her and trade her in for a 25 year old amen isn't that what the world does you've married for 25 30 years your wife doesn't look, quote, hot anymore. And these men in their 50s and 60s divorce their wife and go marry some little 25-year-old floozy, half their age, young enough to be their daughter, and wreck their marriages, wreck their wife's life, and wreck their life in the process by doing that, and wreck their children's life. That's what the world does. That's, that's what the secular world is. Why? Because they don't view marriage as something that's sacred, something that's covenantal, something that is beauty they think they know what love is but they do not husband's love for his wife you love your wife even when 
she doesn't look like she did 20 years earlier. And you don't remind her of that. I want the 20-year-old wife back or the 25-year-old wife back and she's 56, pushing 60. That's wrong. That's sinful. That's sinful. You don't do that to your wife. And women, don't do that to your husbands. Why? We're falling. Do you know that from the minute you're born, you begin to die? You lose cells. From the moment you're born, the moment you come out the womb, the process of death begins. Think about that. This, this is not uh, what the, the curious life of Benjamin Button where the, old, what is it, the younger he was, the older he was, and the older he was, the younger he was. No. As you grow older, you're dying. That's why our bodies degenerate over time. That's why we get wrinkles and, and sunspots and crow's feet and all these other uh, ungodly names that, that people have for different parts of your body. That's why gravity takes over and things begin to sag. Skin begins to sag. Arms begin to sag. Why? Because the process of death is taking over. Now, why is that important? When you're married, I love to see older couples. I remember when I was working at the bank, even, even in my insurance office, I like seeing older couples come in, like in their 70s. One of the questions I asked him is, how long y'all been married? You know, very few of them say it grudgingly. 50, 51 years I've been married to this woman. No, they don't say that. They'll say, we've been married 51 years. Or we were married. I had a couple in my office. They were both in their 90s. They've been married for 72 years. I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is encouragement to me. I'm like, man, you still married to her? Well, she's still married to you? No, that's, that's a glorious picture of the gospel. And they were both believers. That, that was another encouraging thing about it. They were, that, that's a picture of the gospel, that, that sacrificial love, that, 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 that loving, even as your spouse becomes unappealing as they get older, you still love them. You still have that twinkle in your eye. They, they were sitting in my office still holding hands. They were like, she was over there and he was over here and they were uh, scowling. I'm sure they have those moments as all couples, as all married people do. But because Christ loved the church, that man still loved his wife. I've seen older couples where the husband has to take care of the wife or the wife has to take care of the husband. That's biblical love. That is how Christ loves us. He loves the unlovable. We love who the world sees as unlovable. We don't divorce them. We don't put them in a nursing home. We don't go out and commit adultery. We don't do that. That's not biblical love. And that's not the way a husband is supposed to love his wife. Paul says instead, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, husbands, that is what we call it. If you're not married, lady, you still desire to get married, look for that type of gospel man. That shows sacrifice. That is willing to give himself up for you. That is a high standard. 
but it's not a standard that can't be attained. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians. He's not writing to unbelievers. Remember his letters to the saints at Ephesus, not to the ain'ts. He's writing to the saints. This is, this is, this is Christian marriage. This is how biblical marriage looks. A couple who's not believers, they may be married through common grace. But the husband can't love his wife as Christ loved the church because he's not in Christ. So that, that gospel meaning is not there. So the husband is called. Now, man was created first. Man was made the Lord of creation. Man was given this authority, but man was also called to give up himself in sacrifice to his wife. That's a very humble task. Man had that responsibility, but man also had to give up himself. It takes a godly heart to be self-sacrificial. That's a work of the spirit. In the heart of that husband. That is truly the work of the spirit. That is only through the work. Of the Holy Spirit. So Paul lays that precedent out here. Gave himself for her. And then he continues to show what Christ. Does for the church. So what did Christ do for the church? Gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her. Notice how he's speaking. Of the church as her. Because church is the bride of Christ. Those of us who are part of the church of God. We are the bride of Christ. That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her. By what? The washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. ESV says splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. So what is Paul saying to the church here? What is he saying about Christ and the church? And how is this a picture of marriage? Christ sanctifies the church. In other words, he sanctifies the church for the Lord's service. Christ sanctifies the church to do the Lord's work. That is what the church is called to do. That's what we are called to do as being part of the body of Christ. It's to do the Lord's work. And he does this by the washing of water. This might have to do with uh, baptism. In splendor, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. This is at the marriage supper of the Lamb that is described in, uh, I think, Revelation, the 19th chapter. God talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to be involved in that as the church of God. And then he says here, without spot or wrinkle. Without blemish. Christ makes the church holy. He makes his church holy. 
he makes his bride holy. So all of this Christ does for the church. And then what does Paul say in verse 28? In the same way. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves who? Himself. Notice. Paul didn't say he, he who loves himself loves his wife. He said he who loves his wife loves who? Himself. Now what does this mean? Husbands should love their wives, verse 28, as their own bodies. Remember, marriage is what kind of union? One flesh. The husband belongs to the wife, and the wife belongs to the husband. It is a one flesh union. You are no longer two, but you are one. The secular world doesn't look at marriage as a one flesh union. They look at it as a partnership or two people just coming together to get married. And some people get married for the tax benefit. So they can file married jointly. Because you pay less taxes if you, if you file uh, married jointly as opposed to a uh, single head of household or married head of household. They marry for the tax benefit. But as Christians, we marry because we are becoming one flesh. So how is this love exemplified again? In the same way that Christ gave himself up for the church, sanctified the church, cleansed the church, presented the church. The same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. If a man mistreats his wife, if a man abuses his wife, guess who else he's mistreating and abusing? Himself. That's the cosmic union of marriage. When a man is abusing his wife, whether it's verbally, whether it's physically, whether it's through emotional manipulation or psychological manipulation or whatever the case may be when a man is doing that to his wife he's doing it to himself he's not just hurting her he's hurting himself he's bringing harm he thinks that he's doing it to his wife to get her to submit to him as God in the house and what he's actually doing is hurting himself Remember, God sets a higher standard than what the culture says. This is a much higher and better and more glorious standard than what the secularists have. You mistreat your wife, you abuse your wife, you go out on your wife and do whatever. You're doing it to yourself, husband. He who loves his wife loves himself. Why is this important? Because the body for which Christ sacrificed himself was not his own personal body. But it was the body of the church. 
the same way with the husband. The body that the husband and the wife belongs to is not their own bodies. That husband's body belongs to his wife. That wife's body belongs to the husband. Nothing happens in isolation. So if you love your wife, you love yourself. So if the husband loves his wife, he is showing that he loves himself. But why? Because his wife belongs to him. If he's mistreating his wife, then guess what? He doesn't love himself. That's why self-love is just so stupid. Because you put self first instead of the object of your love. Paul says the order is he who loves his wife first in order. Loves who? Himself. He didn't say you got to love yourself first in order to love your wife. That's disordered. Because if you love yourself first, you're going to make it all about you. She better, she better cook and clean and do whatever else. She better have my hot plate ready when I get home from work. She better not come out here and say nothing while I got the guys over. No, I don't tell Fran that. <laughs> That's what self-love does. You, you focus on you at the expense of others. And you want everybody else to focus on you at the expense of themselves. But Paul tells the husband, no, 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 no. You love your wife. He who loves his wife loves himself. And again, Christ showed that. For no one, verse 29, ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Again, no one has ever hated his own flesh. Look what Paul says. Own bodies. Himself. Own flesh. All this speaks of marriage as a one flesh union. All of it. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body after reading all this is marriage just a piece of paper no it's a glorious union it's a picture of the gospel it is a picture of gospel love it is a picture of gospel faithfulness two sinners Marriage is about two sinners, not, not one sinner and one saint. It's two sinners, two fallen people coming together in a covenantal union before God who created them. 
and in front of the witnesses, whether it's the church or the justice of the peace or what family and friends, whatever the case may be, you're still ultimately making that covenant between you and your wife, your spouse and God. The husband pledges as Adam did that his wife is flesh of his flesh bone of his bones and he makes a covenant before God to take care of his wife as if he were his wife because you are one flesh now so Paul says no one ever hates his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it And that is the picture of marriage. And that is the responsibility of the husband. The husband does that. Worldly headship says, I'm your head. So take your orders from me and you must do whatever I want. That's what the world says. But godly headship says, I am your head, so I must care for you and serve you. The husband serves the wife. And Paul says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. That's what I think about. The, the husband's duty is to serve his wife. It's to serve, not to lord his authority over his wife. Wives submit to their husbands because their husbands are accountable before God for them. I must care for you and serve you. Why? Because you are my own flesh. You are my own flesh. I don't think marriage has been presented this way to a lot of you. If we're honest about it. A lot of us, including myself, came from churches that did not give a good exposition of what biblical marriage should look like. The times that I do do premarital counseling, this is what I walk through. I walk through Ephesians 5. I walk through what it means, what, what, what Paul says, because it is important. But this is not the height of romantic love as the world knows it. All the world is concerned about is Oh, they look so cute as a couple. You see these celebrities? Look, they're not relationship goals. I'm sorry. They're not hashtag goals. They're hashtag stay away from. They're hashtag don't follow them. Oh, they look so beautiful together. And then two years later, three years later, uh, please respect, uh, respect our privacy. We have decided to go our separate ways. And all their worshipers are so crushed. Oh, you think Taylor Swift is going to marry Travis Kelsey? No. You know how many boyfriends Taylor Swift has had? She is not a person to follow. She writes breakup songs about them. She's not a model. She's never been married. You know how many guys she's dated? She's famous. Oh, she's not relationship goals. We follow those people... Not we, but you know what I mean. Our older people, are, who's Taylor Swift? You don't want to know. She's, she's massively popular among a certain demographic. 
younger people. Her followers are called Swifties. I mean, I'm sorry, her idolaters are called Swifties, her worshipers. But anyway, she's been in so many different relationships, can't even count. That's the world's example. You do that continuously, you're going to be broken. And every relationship you look at is going to be perverted because you have a perverted view of relationships and marriage. I'm glad that God saved me when he did. When I met my wife, this, this is something that I heard someone say that's so true. For young Christians, you date to marry. You don't date to have a good time. Have a good time is always sin. Amen. That's what when people say, I just want to have, yeah, you want to hang out and, and, and commit sin against God. And I'm not going to go there, but you know what I mean. The world says, yeah, live it up. Have a good time. You're still young. You got time. That's what the world says, right? No. Don't listen to the world. You date to marry. You date to marry. Men, you date to marry. And when you marry, you show this love that Paul is talking about. The height of romantic love, the height of love is not romantic love as the world speaks. Paul's not talking about love that is based on looks. It's not based on image. It's not based on the ability to be part of the cool kids club. This love is expressed through sacrifice and that's what Paul is saying when he says for no one has ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body again that reminds us Paul is talking to believers he's not talking to unbelievers why do Christian husbands love their wives because they belong to Christ just as the husband does if you marry an unbeliever, you can't have that kind of love. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You marry an unbeliever through common grace, you can love your wife because you should, but you are not part of the same body because your wife is not in Christ, but you are. You are destined for heaven and she isn't. She's not going to heaven just because she married you as a believer. She has to have faith for herself. So when Paul says that he's speaking to believers, we, we believers, the saints are members of whose body? Christ's body. And the Christian husband is supposed to treat his Christian wife as that, as part of the same body, because they are. And then he explains the reason for that. Therefore, a man shall do what? Leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. And the two shall become what? One flesh. We see that in Genesis 2 as we read the first marriage that took place between Adam and Eve. 
We see Jesus repeat that in Matthew 19 when he was talking about marriage. Again, one flesh, one flesh. So when God tells the husband to love his wife as he loves his own flesh, this originates in the creation order. This originates in the becoming one flesh. That's why he says here, therefore. So for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24 again, if you want to cross-reference in Matthew 19 and 5. Marriage is one flesh. And why is it important that a man leave his mother and father? <laughs> the parents raised that man up to a certain age, and that man is now responsible and ready to go out and do what? Marry. And when he marries, it's a kind of a separation of of cutting off their parents, not in a, a disrespectful way, but saying, Mom and Dad, I'm a man now. I'm going to marry my wife, and I'm going to cleave to her. And we're going to be a one flesh union. <laughs> and that involves a lot, but there's a separation that takes place. That man is now what? One flesh with his wife. They're together now. They're, they're one flesh. They're flesh of each other's flesh. They are responsible for each other. That man now is responsible for his wife. You know who should be leading? You know, you see, a, 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 not churches our size, but a lot of bigger churches. You know who usually leads the family to church? The wives. You got some instances, I've been in church before where the wife went to church, but the husband didn't. Or it's the wife that says, hey, everybody, let's get up. Let's go to church. Instead of the husband doing it. That's backwards. That man is the spiritual head of the home. He should be doing what? Leading his family. We are going to church today. We're going to worship the Lord together. We're going to fellowship with the saints together. That is how marriage looks. And that's how that one flesh union looks. It is a ordered union. It is, it is, it is orderly designed by God. And it is the only one that works. People understand this. When we do things out of God's order, there's always going to be chaos. We talked about that last week. Either Christ or chaos. When that husband and wife is not treating their marriage like a one flesh union, it's going to be chaos. It's going to be disordered. It's always going to be the way. It's always going to be drama. Always going to be fussing and fighting. And, and you know, some of them may rise to domestic situations. It's always going to be that way. Why? Because that marriage is not in proper order. The husband is not loving his wife as Christ loved the church. The greatest responsibility is on the husband. When Adam and Eve sinned, who did God call out to first? He says, Adam, wherefore art thou? He didn't call out Eve. He called to the man. 
Adam, where are you? Adam was hiding because I was naked. How did you know you were naked? He called out to the man because it was Adam's responsibility. We bear the sin. We're in Adam. It is Adam. Say, Adam is our Adam is our federal head. In other words, he's our representative. Paul talks about that in Romans five. We bear the sin of Adam. We didn't bear the sin of Eve. We bear the sin of, of Adam. The marriage home, the marital home is the same way. It falls on the husband first. When that home falls apart, men, we have to take that responsibility. We have to set that foundation in the home so that we may present our wife to the Lord as glorious. That's what we have to do. We are to set the tone for setting uh, the marital home as one flesh. That's why he said, leave your mother and your father. Grow up. Take responsibility. Take responsibility for your home. Take responsibility for your marriage. Take responsibility for your wife. Leaving your mother and father is a sign of maturity. I'm going to tell you all this. This is just me personally. My mom knows nothing that goes on in my household because it's not her business. It's not. She, she knows nothing. Now, early on, she didn't like it, but I didn't care. Mom, I'm married now. I was 27 years old when I got married. This is me and Fran's marriage. Because I've seen, and we might well be real about it, some of y'all probably know too, you let your mama and your daddy into your marriage, it's going to be chaos. I can tell you the first person not going to like it is the wife. It happened with my parents. And my grandmother, my father's mom, my granny, it caused problems in my marriage, in my parents' marriage. It did. You know, they're deceased. My father died 10 years ago. My grandmother died uh, what, six years ago, 2017, February. Love my grandma death. But that caused problems in my parents' marriage. Because my father didn't leave and cleave to his wife, my mom. That wasn't the only reason, but I was one of them. Are you going to be married to me or to your mama? I can't tell you how many times I heard my mom say that. Whose responsibility is it? The husband. This is my marriage. We're one flesh. Mom, dad, I love you, but I'm cleaving to my wife. We're one flesh. It don't mean that you don't talk to him anymore. And, you know. I still talk to my mom. She's up in Syracuse and you. I still talk to my mom. I love my mom. But my mom knows not to go there with me. From day one. Because it's not her business. If I got a part of my wife. Who do I talk to? My wife. Why? Because she's flesh of my flesh. She is bone of my bones. 
How's my wife going to feel if I'm going to my mama because I got a problem with her? This ain't in my notes. But it's true. That's what, that's what hurts marriages. This is the man not being the husband, not treating his wife as his own flesh. He wouldn't want it to happen to him. You leave your mother and your father and you cleave. You hold fast to it. That's what cleaving means. You, you, you hold fast to your wife. You, you cherish her. Why? Because Paul says she is your own body. No one hates his own body, hates his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. You can't nourish and cherish your wife with your mom and dad sticking their nose in your business. That's not nourishing. That's not cherishing. Or not even your best friend, your BFF, or Facebook. Putting out subliminal posts. Taking shots at your spouse. People have to read between the lines. Oh, man, they must be having problems. No. You, man, you treat your wife as you would if you were her. That's what it means. That's what it looks like. If I mistreat my wife, again, Paul said it. Well, God said it. If I mistreat my wife, or mistreat myself. He who loves his wife loves himself. That means if you hate your wife, you hate yourself. If you mistreat your wife, you're mistreating yourself. If you abuse your wife, you're abusing yourself. Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives something more glorious. He says, as we continue here and finish up in verse 32, this mystery is profound. The mystery between what? Christ and the church. And, uh, and, and uh, he said, now I, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And what is the it? Marriage. Excuse me. That's the mystery of marriage, that it is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And since we see it in that light, we treat it much differently as believers. We treat it better. We treat it more glorious. We don't trivialize marriage like the world does. We don't cheapen marriage like the world does. We don't try to redefine marriage like the world does. No matter how many attempts the world takes to redefine marriage, they can't do it. You can't change what God has ordained. You can only pervert it. You can only pervert it. To pervert means to make unclean, to make unholy. You can't change what God has ordained. You can only pervert it. And that's all the world can hope to do. They're not redefining marriage. And we, we so easily say that, oh, the world is trying to read. No, they're not redefining marriage. Marriage is ordained by God. They're perverting marriage. They can't even destroy marriage because it is an institution that God has ordained. And what God has ordained will last forever because God will uphold it. Try as they may, the world can't destroy it. And Paul says here at the end, as we get ready to close, however, let each one love his wife as himself. Again, 
When you love your wife's wife as yourself, that means you are treating your wife's wife as if she is you. And let the wife see that she does what? Respects her husband. This is God's ideal for all marriages. Not just for believers, but also for unbelievers. So husbands, love your wife. And wives, respect your husbands. That's simply put. Husbands, respect your, I'm sorry, love your wives. And wives, respect your husbands. So I hope that these last couple weeks we've just seen a good picture of what marriage. There's a lot more I could have gotten to, but I left out. Like I, I can preach on this for two hours, but I'm not going to do that. But the main gist of everything is this. As Christians, as believers, we want to look at marriage through biblical lens, not through the lens of the world, not through the lens of government, what the government says marriage is. The secularists, the secular world, what they see marriage is because it is all a perversion of true biblical marriage. The only way to human flourishing is to do marriage God's way. Because when you don't, it's going to leave a lot of people in misery. And we don't want to be counted among that number. So anyone who has a desire to get married, you know what scripture lays out. If you're a single unmarried woman, you see what scripture lays out as far as the type of husband that you you need and that is a man who will love you sacrificially but you don't treat him like a doormat because he does that no you lovingly submit and respect him for doing that because you got some women who won't respect their husbands despite what their husbands do for them they'll be too demanding and demand more as if the husbands are supposed to serve them but they're not supposed to serve their husbands it's not a one-way street. Amen? Because you are what? One flesh. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for showing us the glory of marriage. Thank you for showing us what marriage should be like, what it should look like. It is a picture of Christ and the church. And in Lord, it is a glorious picture it is a glorious institution it is something that you ordained that means that it is good Lord our world has sought to destroy marriage but the world can't do it they can only pervert and Lord there are millions of people lying in its wake so Lord help us to see marriage as you see it help us to do marriage as you desire it to be done and Lord, may we as Christians bring glory to your name and glory to the institution of marriage by the husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and the wives lovingly submitting to and respecting their own husbands. And Lord, I pray that you gave us a better picture of what marriage, what biblical marriage looks like. I wasn't able to get to every single thing. Lord, I pray that I gave a good overview these last couple of weeks of what biblical marriage looks like. And Lord, continue to reveal your truth to us by means 
of your spirit and sanctify us, Lord, and cleanse us and grow us in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name I pray, amen. Amen. Amen.